0: Hey Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Sparra, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So if you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash C-Y-B-O and enter C-Y-B-O. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash C-Y-B-O and enter coupon code C-Y-B-O. Welcome to Motor Learning for Coaches. This show features Casey Kreider, Harjeev Singh, Andy Bass, and John Mayer. The mission of this project is to bring motor learning theory out of the lab and into your practice and game space. After one listen, you'll be ready to coach your brains out. All right, we're back with Motor Learning for Coaches with Andy Bass and Casey Kreider and myself. Uh, And wanted to start, I guess, with Andy first. Andy, you are kind of in the dog days, they say, of, of uh, the season. How's how's the season been going with the Pirates? How are you holding up going through uh, all the, uh, the challenges of travel and all that goes with the baseball season?
1: Yeah, the dog days of summer is used for a reason. It's August, players, coaches, staff, myself, we, we definitely feel it. Even teams that are in the hunt for playoffs feel it. How I'm holding up, it's year two being in the big league, so understanding a little more of what there is and how I can take care of myself, and I think – For any coaches listening that all that is applicable to getting good sleep, getting good uh, nutrition, working out consistently and keeping that proper mindset, because baseball every day traveling around the country. Yeah, it is something that can grind on us and wear on us. And I think a, a really great strategy for anybody going through something like this is to recognize it and to validate it with ourselves and others around us to push it away and say, oh, it's not that bad. Uh, that just makes it worse. And you know, we can validate the emotion that we're feeling and say, yeah, this is stressful. This is a tough time of the season and that's okay, but we don't have to ignore the fact that it is the dog days of summer. And I think that's what a uh, staff that the pirates are doing a really great job when we ended the, uh, the all-star break and the trade deadline came about our staff was really awesome about admitting that this is going to be difficult. We're all going to work through it together, but August and September in the major leagues is a difficult time even if it's the major league so I think recognizing and owning it and admitting it is a really wonderful strategy
0: you answered the question I was going to follow up with is yeah do you just come in like oh, everything's I'm good you know we can we can get through this so it sounds like you validate it then what's the next step Because so I can see you could just kind of like sit in the misery they're like oh, we're all like exhausted we're all tired and then what do you do you just sit in it or what do you do next
1: yeah. The first step to solving any problem is admitting there is one. So we've gotten through the first step. And the second one is then, okay, this is a grind. So what are we going to do today? How are you going to come in today to help the pirates win? What are you going to do differently to work through this? And I think um, one of the things that's really helpful with that is to break up the monotony, having different types of days, different type of training schedules, having what we call show and goes where everybody comes to the field a lot later and we don't have a total work day, um, so I think the uh, staff with the Pirates does a really great job of adding variation and variability, which you and Casey on the call, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I think a great way to work through the stress is to add variation, not just physically and motorically, but also psychologically.
0: That's awesome. So mo- motor learning can help uh, beyond just skill acquisition. It can help. Uh, it sounds like on the mental side of things. That's pretty 100%. That's cool. why sports yeah. psychology works so well with it. That's awesome. So Casey, you're in kind of a different sort of grind. You're at the beginning of your season. Your first ever season as a head coach. Uh, yeah, fill us in on, on how you are. What day two was yesterday?
2: Day two was yesterday. Day three is today. And that I, and to me, it still kind of feels like the dog days. I don't know if that, <laughs> at least this season, if that's ever going away. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that first couple days, um, it's always, uh, there's a kind of a unique challenge. There's all these emotions, right. And uh, they're amplified for me doing it for the first time as the head coach, but you're excited, you're nervous. There's a lot of doubt. Um, there's a lot of distraction. And, uh, I think for me, one of the things that's been really helpful is just being pretty clear on, uh, the principles that I use to design practice, the principles that I use to interact with the athletes and being really clear on those. We, we did a little retreat, um, out in the sticks in West Virginia last week, and with our, our entire staff, support staff, and everybody, it was awesome. But we spent a lot of time talking about, hey, what are these principles? Because it's going to get chaotic. We're not always going to be able to communicate in real time. But how do we want to treat these girls? Um, how do we want to design training in the weight room? How do we want to design training in the, the gym? Um, and uh, that, I think, that's cut through a lot of the noise, emotional noise, if you will, uh, which has been great. But. Uh, yeah mostly uh, lots of nerves lots of doubt lots of excitement uh just everything's on an 11 right now Uh, but it's been good
0: that's awesome so i know traditionally in in lots of sports and for sure in volleyball the beginning of the year you do double days where it's like you you have a morning and then an afternoon practice but i think of you as uh maybe sometimes non-traditional i'm wondering how you go about Uh, that beginning of the season do you do double days or how do you do it
2: yeah um well, yeah, no, I don't.
0: No surprise. Uh, I
2: yeah. Well, yeah. Hopefully, I'm not traditional. I don't know, but yeah, we'll see. But um, the no double days for us, and that um, I, I think that's something that other coaches have been doing. We we started uh, moving away from that uh, a couple of years back when I was at Miami, and uh, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, Watson, Jason Watson at Arkansas is doing something kind of similar, or has been for a while. He, yeah. And I know, here's my thought about that. Um, I think there's benefits to both, without question. Um, But for me, my ethos as a coach, um, I don't know that dread uh, is a particularly useful thing uh, for development, uh, for motivation. I think when we get into this situation where the athletes are dreading stuff, um, it's just not a good place to start uh, when we're talking about learning. And we're talking about trying to compete really hard, being motivated to win, uh, and motivated to improve. And I, what we found over and over again was uh, there was all these celebratory posts on social media or conversations that you hear from the athletes: "Hey, preseason's over, double days are over, finally!" Or, or in the summer, "Oh God, I'm dreading this this you know massive uh, amount of training that's coming." And um, we know that the way the NCAA set it up is bad. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but our sport for the two soccers for a couple other fall sports, it's just bad. I mean, the, the most of the evidence I've come across shows that we're just, we have to cram in a lot of learning and a lot of development and a lot of workload in a really short period of time. That's a recipe for disaster. Mostly what's going to happen is it's this war of attrition. Like if you can, you know, roll the dice the right way and get lucky and stay healthy And you got a great shot at being good. But, um, but how can we manage the dread? How can we minimize the dread? So what we do instead is we kind of right in the thick of the middle of the day, maybe noon to four, noon to five. We have one long practice and um, we'll lift before every practice. That's kind of what we do It's we'll always do that um, regardless of the day, but we'll lift for about 20, 30 minutes. Excuse me. And, um, and then from there, uh, we'll maybe go for two hours, give them a 15, 20 minute break. We give them a little bit of autonomy there. Hey, you can 10, 20, whatever you need. What's that sweet spot where you don't have to rewarm up, but you get some chance, you get a chance to go on Snap or whatever silly thing they're doing. TikTok is doing. Uh, they're getting on TikTok and getting a snack or whatever. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then... From there, uh, maybe another two and a half, three hours. And uh, what we have found, we ask them constantly, hey, what do you think? What do you think we think? And to date, we haven't had a single girl ever say, my preference is wake up early, do a practice in the morning, get this little break where I'm sore and tired and can't really nap because I'm nervous about the next one coming. And then late in the evening and just repeat that. They have all preferred, hey, sleep in, uh, take your evening, get dinner relax um, and we'll just try a little bit longer in one session but we'll see uh, day two so no authority here I can tell you that
0: yeah cool uh, I like it thanks for explaining it um so yeah you had a topic for us today uh challenge point yeah I guess take us through it what, what does that mean
2: yeah um so I think the challenge point hypothesis uh Andy you can correct me if I'm wrong here but um, it feels to me like a little bit of bordering on like one of those seminal paradigms that research has been conducted through and, and really become very popular. Um, and and there's groups that are critical of it, certainly like all this stuff. Um, but basically, uh, 2004, I think um, Mark Wadignoli and Tim Lee, uh, two very well-respected researchers, proposed this idea. And I think they looked at it through practice uh, design, contextual interference, this, that sort of stuff. But basically what it came down to was they identified that uh, something that I think is really intuitive for coaches. I, usually when you tell people about this, they go, oh, "Yeah, obviously this is the case, but there is as a variable, the level of challenge of an activity or of a practice um, just from a skilled standpoint, like uh, what's the rate of success, how challenging is this, this uh, activity or this practice um, is a really critical variable for skill development. Like if we want to develop, then we need to pay attention to how challenging things are because a little bit like the Goldilocks method. There's a sweet spot. Too challenging, not so good. We're not going to see a ton of improvement. Not challenging enough, not going to see too much improvement. But if we hit that sweet spot, then it's uh, it's like magic. We'll improve a lot. And um, instead of my personally, instead of getting into like the the weeds of like why this is the way that it is, or, or anything, mostly what I found is you, I haven't come across too many coaches who go that's ridiculous. It doesn't matter how hard practice is. You can be easy and get better. It can be way too hard. You but Mostly, we all kind of agree, whether we're familiar with this material or not. Um, but I find it so interesting and frustrating, to be completely transparent, that oftentimes we, we rationally acknowledge that this is the case. And then our behavior as coaches doesn't always foster that. It doesn't always facilitate this idea that, that practice, uh, the challenge point of practice, the level of challenge in practice, is a critical variable that we have to be really sensitive to, and uh, on an individual basis, on a group basis. And um, I just, I think that there's probably uh, a disconnect between us going, yeah, it makes sense, uh, and us actually behaving in ways that suggest we understand that that we do that. And the example I think of is, uh, you know, see coaches in our sport often, they run the same practice plan every year or every practice or whatever. They run the same weekly practice plan and they run the same activities. And that's, there's some value in that, I would argue, uh, but the problem is, is uh, there's just not a lot of wiggle room in terms of how challenging uh, those activities get we this is the we call it, uh, you know, whatever XYZ drill, we write it on the board, or we put it on the plan, we go do that drill, we get our reps in and we move on. And uh, oftentimes, I think we fall well short of that appropriate level of challenge. And I know, Andy, you, you probably could speak a little bit more deeply about uh, what that rate would be of success and things like that. But um, I think that it's a worthwhile discussion for us and for coaches to talk about um, how we can better appreciate this intuitive idea that uh, as a variable, the challenge is, is critical.
0: Cool. That's a good start. So yeah, Andy, you want to take that? Is, is there an appropriate level, like they're succeeding seven out of 10? I know there's some in popular literature that's thrown out numbers. And um, do we base that on success? Like they're competing or they're completing the, whatever the skill successfully this many times, is that how we base they're in the right zone?
1: Yes, I, I know there are some books and some even some academic articles out there that try to put a fine number on it, be it a 60% success rate, uh, between 60 and 80% success rate. I think those are great numbers to have in our head theoretically. I'm not sure that we should be beholden to those statistics because things are so individualized. I recognize that that is a cliche, but they are so individualized. Hmm. Um, But I think creating an aspect of organic failure, one of the things that I think comes across with the challenge point when we think of creating an aspect of failure in practice is coaches will have this idea of I have to create failure seven out of 10 times they'll do three regular reps and then they will just create an inorganic failure. They will make a drill or a Mm. rep so astronomically difficult that the player can't possibly succeed. And that is not the failure that we're discussing. It's an organic failure that happens naturally rather than happens more um, scientifically or we're creating a drill to set them up for failure. That's not the, the theory. The theory is creating organic failure where it happens in a waxing and waning fashion,
2: Andy. That's uh, a really good point. One that I hadn't really considered, but I think um, I know. Ex- I can picture exactly what you're saying. It's like, and and this is probably a broader conversation of life about the application of some of these more academic or or research based uh, print or ideas, paradigms, whatever you call them. Um, but you're, I think, you've nailed it. There's, we want to appreciate this. So what do we do? We make it really easy. We nail the. We're going to serve a bunch of little meatballs that are easy to pass. We get our success and then we hammer them. And neither of those things are representative or specific to what they're going to face in the game, whatever you know, direction you want to take that. And I think that's a really good observation, I, something that I hadn't really thought of. I, I was thinking more like we get really static with our practice design. And I think that's still the case. We can discuss that. But the idea of organic failure is... Probably a really important one. Again, something that feels intuitive, but it's not necessarily always behaved. But yeah, I think that's something that coaches could walk away. I certainly, I got a red right practice plan here in a second, and I'll be paying attention to the rate of organic failure. It's not just the rate of failure; like we can create failure uh, in a non-representative way, but the rate of organic failure—that's mm-hmm. this this magic—is mostly probably traced back to this idea of being representative of what they're going to do in the game. That's a that's a good call by you.
0: What about the, Andy, I know, you, especially on the mental side, like observing the psychology and the, the emotional response, I imagine that would give you good feedback on if you're in the challenge point, you know, if maybe, yeah, they're just completely confident the whole time versus, you know, crushing themselves or is, is like the ultimate zone, like just a, a healthy dose of frustration, you know, do you have any sort of like uh, meter or just things, things to be observing? Um, on the psychological side.
1: Sure. With with that, I think it would be useful for coaches to almost backwards chain it. Notice what the emotional state typically is of this, let's athlete A in a game. Uh, what What is their beneficial psychological state? And normally that probably is going to be a healthy dose of, we, we call it frustration or uh, maybe sometimes anxiety and trying to replicate that in practice through this failure. So it's not putting them so far where they're frustrated completely. But if I'm in a game and I typically have this look of consternation on my face when I'm doing well, but I'm still striving hard, you know, try to create drills that replicate that emotional state or that, that kind of body language in practice. I think that would be a great place for coaches to start is to backwards chain it from the game because then you, know, you talk, uh, Casey mentioned representative design, not just motorically, but now you're creating representative design psychologically and emotionally.
0: It's a funny way to think. I feel like so many coaches are like, yeah, I want to you know, build their confidence in practice, but we're kind of saying, Oh, you see your players really confident. All right. Then like try to break that, like try to, <laughs> but I mean, obviously the confidence can come from, mm-hmm. you know, going through hard things and then they're more prepared for the match. But, um, I'm curious, Casey, from a, a team sport perspective. So it seems a lot easier from an individual, you know, I'm working one-on-one with a passer working one-on-one with a pitcher or a hitter, uh, if I'm running a team activity, which is what we do most of the time, how am I supposed, am I supposed to think like each individual player has a different challenge point focus or is it a overall team focus or how do you go about it when you're thinking about 12 players or six players on a court?
2: It's hard. (laughs) Uh, And I don't envy Andy with a bunch of different players in very wildly different positions and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I think there's a couple of things there. We, we, like development happens across a, a a bunch of different dimensions. And uh, so uh, we can appreciate that if we design an activity, it may not be the perfect challenge point, uh, but there's a bandwidth there that maybe we could try to get as many of our athletes in as possible. And that if we're doing a good job recruiting, we should be, you know, clustering our talent level for the most part. Uh, we're running a camp. It's going to be way harder because it's that bandwidth is going to be much larger. But um, I also think that there yeah, if you get into like Newell's work about the idea of dynamical systems and stuff like that, uh, I like at times conceptualizing the team as like a system, an organism, and let's challenge. Uh, just like our, our, you know, I'm an individual, but I'm an am a system full of subsystems: the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, you know, psychological stuff. I and uh, there's all these. I, I don't like the word components, but there are all these aspects that are interacting dynamically. Right. Well. What if we looked at at, uh, our team as a a system or an organism in and of itself that has all these different aspects, the individual actors and stuff like that, that can co-adapt and interact with each other, um, but we can challenge that, that full team system. So we get a sense for like, if we're trying to work on siding out a little bit, better, let's get a sense for what our average rate of siding out is, and then let's challenge that. And uh, let's see. And then obviously we also are paying attention to the individuals, but that may be, <laughs> that may be a little bit of a cop-out in terms of just going, oh yeah, the whole thing's, you know, an organism and we'll just pretend that. And uh, I don't think it's certainly the only way to look at it, but uh, we've done that a lot. We look at our, our offenses as, as our pass, set, hit, side-out offense as, as a system, an organism. And we just then put that back into the model and say, how are we going to constrain this system to, to shape behavior? of the system. And then uh, the sort of block defense and transition stuff, same thing. And um, so I, that's mostly like a conceptual thing for me. Like I'll, I'll be planning practice and I'll go, uh, okay, let's step away from Susie and Sandy and Sally. And, and but what if uh, all of them together trying to side out, what if we looked at that? as like the organism corner of the triangle, and then how do we manipulate the task and the environment that organism um, to help to better foster skill development you know of, of that system but uh, does that make any sense
0: yeah is that something you have to think about too andy or is, i guess baseball you guys can break things down individually a lot you certainly and i recognize with the two of you on the call and with
1: volleyball coaches listening that baseball is a team sport but it's radically more individualized than than um, volleyball with casey's example of using looking at a team as a dynamical system which it is uh, yeah, baseball, you can be more individualized simply, even though it's a team game versus volleyball because everybody works off themselves. Um, so I do agree completely with Casey, but it is a case-by-case basis based on the sport and the skill itself.
0: As an athlete, it seems like that's a skill, me being comfortable in this challenge point. If I'm, If I'm a coach pushing someone's, the edge of their challenge point, is that something like they're gonna then be more comfortable in that zone. So then the next day, maybe their challenge point is like a moving target where like, okay, we can up it. Like, is that, does that sound, am I, is that right? Is that a skill? Absolutely. It's similar to
1: um, stress inoculation. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're just constantly shifting the baseline and moving that needle further and further. Um, But it's difficult at first and coaches have to be okay with players not liking it at first. Mm -hmm. that casey's original point of why does this sound so good when we're sitting over a cup of coffee but it's so difficult to implement um, on a granular level um we have to be okay with players not liking it at first and pretty much not being like being frustrated in practice and not working well with the failure at first we can't we have to stay true to this theory if this is what we want to dive into because we can't sit on the fence with it either we have to If we're going to do it we have to dive into and we have to be okay with our own uncomfortability and our own stress and failure in practice of implementing this
0: do you guys think there's times of the year where you want to push those edges of their challenge point and then times of the year where you maybe go below it i know people will talk about before a match or before a game or like the the warm-up for game do you you guys think about in those terms or should we always kind of try to find that sweet spot
2: well Andy, uh, I think baseball is a little bit ahead in terms of like periodization, and mostly from like a um, physiological standpoint. I think they've done a really good job of pitchers. I mean those arms are so valuable that they are so good at nailing like this is how much you should throw. and um, I don't know so much to Andy you can speak to the skill development side. I, I would argue that uh, when in doubt some fluctuation in, or some variation in that is a good thing, you know uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I would be really sensitive to the idea of like that sweet spot um, is great. Um, but I think also uh, pushing beyond it occasionally, I, I would argue, you know, you probably want that sweet spot happening closer to competition at a micro level, like day before, day up at a macro level, like, Hey, and for us, it's the fall season when we compete, um, versus I I would like some more fluctuation. Um probably uh we should get further away from competition. But I think I don't love the idea of it's like the sweet spot every single day. And I don't, I can't speak to what the research would suggest. I would imagine if I had to guess, and you look at Neglo noise work, probably there's a there's some value, and it's like say we stay there because that's where on a moment to moment basis the best development happens. I have a hunch that um based on my you know theoretical stance that variation uh in any of this stuff is going to be there's going to be some at minimum positive byproducts of that. Uh but yeah I think for us in the spring, pushing them to do stuff that's a little harder. So they're going to fail more. Like we've done this in the spring where we're going to play like you know, silly fast, we're going to try to like hit a fourth step set for for a day for a couple of days. And then we're gonna, you know, dial it way back. And we've done stuff like that. That's more out of my intuition than I have like a paper that says, hey, here's here's what you should be doing. But I just got to guess that that, um, uh, operating in a bandwidth around that sweet spot um, is probably useful as opposed to just trying to nail it every time.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I would have thought of Oh, there's a sweet spot. So we got to live in there. But you're saying like even variability when it, when it comes to the sweet spot. So you're, I mean, Casey just lives the, uh, ecological. Yeah. You know, me. I'm a, I'm a sucker <laughs> I'm a
2: sucker for variability. Um, so, but I, I, I fully full disclosure disclaimer, whatever you call it. I don't, that's a hunch. That's a personal hunch. If there's any coaches listening, going, Hey, the science, this is not what, I don't have anything to give you for the science on that one. Um, that's just a hunch and a personal preference. Um, but yeah, I like variation, you know, wherever we can find it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like if I'm listening as a coach, like, well, let's, let's push it. Let's see how far we can challenge our athletes. Like, What's the danger of going on the high side of it, going too far? What, what, what would be the bad of that? Wouldn't, wouldn't people be challenged more, making more mistakes, learning more? That's Andy. This
2: is Andy's wheelhouse right here. This is the sports side. I'm going to guess, Andy, that there's an an influence on motivation, particularly in a negative way. Uh, But you, you got the goods on this one. Uh, it, it definitely takes a toll on motivation.
1: I know we're staying away from theory here, but if you look at self-determination theory with three pillars, autonomy, relatedness, and competence, yes, if we, if we stretch this too far or too consistently, too often to keep with Casey's idea of ecological dynamics, we can look at a team as a system, but we can also look at a season as a system. And we have to wax and wane as far as on our failure there as well. There are certainly times, John, we open this up talking about the dog days of August. We're not crushing our players right now because we can't always do that. We have to take the psychology into it. Um, but yes, when we go above the line and the, the line I'm referring to here is that line of failure, that sweet spot. if we do go too far, then we're absolutely just dominating their amygdala. They're in that fight or flight mode where it's just total fear, um and survival that's kicking in so we can go too far just with everything moderation
0: all things including moderation nice so it'd be nice to close with some examples of of how it's used in baseball how, how it's used in volleyball i'm picturing it sounds like i think with both of you what you've observed more often is people go on the lower side of this challenge point like it's coaches like to set up practices that are, are too easy that you know maybe build some fake confidence um so I guess, Casey, first, uh, what would be a way for someone in serve receive? I guess I'm thinking of two examples. One, you know, maybe just the traditional where like a coach is rolling a ball over, but maybe more realistic where I've seen the same passer for the last six months. And she's the second, you know, maybe someone on our second team. So her, or sorry, the same server. someone I'm a passer. I've seen the same server over and over and and it's not as tough a serve as maybe when we're playing the best team in our conference so then how do i you know in the constraints of my gym i you know i can't bring in a higher level player like how do i get my my passer in this you know goldilocks zone
2: oh man there's a lot more variables than i to to like receiving serve even than i think um are appreciated. Um, if you're married to the idea of like this traditional interpretation of specificity, then you should have your players hitting their serves against your passers. And the only thing that would be better, uh, if you, is if you could get, uh, maybe the opponents to come into your gym, which has never happened. Right. But uh, if you could do that, um, I, I don't know. I, I think like John, you're a, uh, an elite player and you try to convince people that you weren't, but you were an elite indoor player and elite beach player. Um, uh, you can, manipulate you, you can hit a serve that's tough as tough as as anybody that they're going to face so there you can step in and do something like that um and uh, you can change variables i mean there's a lot of variables you can change you can change the distance so let's ignore the football rule you're going to start on the line or inside the line whatever that that's going to create potentially a little more challenge because there's less time um you you could manipulate things that people get really sensitive to like uh the coaches oftentimes don't like you could manipulate the ball. I mean, if I serve a lighter volleyball, you like a volley light, for example, uh, we all know that the movement of that is different. And just the challenge of that goes way up. Probably I would argue goes way, <laughs> way past that sweet spot initially. And that's enough where we could go beyond and then there's this adaptation that occurs, but um, that is going to be, uh, you know, a variable that we can change um, to make things more challenging. I, I my hope is that coaches, you uh, appreciate and really spend some time thinking about what are the like all the variables that go into this particular action and how can we then manipulate them to increase or decrease the challenge right we do kids we put a sock over a balloon because the speed is too fast and the ball is too heavy for them to manipulate successfully in a a sweet spot so they don't have fun or but if you put a sock in a balloon or you put a balloon in a sock all of a sudden volleyball becomes fun for them because Mm -hmm. This and, and also, I think personally, and the research about the, the development is increased. And all we're doing there is is manipulating this variable: weight of the ball, the size of the ball, to meet appropriate challenge point for for them in that moment. And uh, the thing that I notice uh, more than anything is, uh, we I think we touched on it a little bit. We <clears throat> there's there's a couple different dimensions. I think you can look at this. If we, for example, we use a blocking drill. I and mean, you see this a lot, like, "Hey, we're going to scale the challenge point of the blocking because we got this new freshman middle blocker who's lost, right? She can't handle it. She's getting demotivated. She's upset. She's not having any success at all. That's challenge is too high. So we're going to take away the middle blocker uh, that she's having to defend against, and it's just going to be a left side block or a left side hitter and a right side hitter, and then she's going to block. Well, lowered the challenge point, right? And then we're going to do that drill a bunch, and we're going to do that drill." And uh, day one, she stuffs zero balls. And day two, she stuffs zero balls. And then day three, she stuffs two. And then day four, she stuffs two. And then three, and then five. And, then, and all of a sudden, she's... And we're going, look, progress. And that's true, right? That We can't argue that that's progress. But there's a different way, an additional way, not a, not a better word, just an additional way we could view progress. What if uh, we kept upping the challenge so that the outcome was in that sweet spot? That maybe the sweet spot for this is, out of 10 balls, she stops three of them or two of them or whatever the case is, you know, a hypothetical example. What if we kept upping the challenge on her so that it's constantly in that zone? And I think my interpretation of, of the challenge point hypothesis would fit that idea a little bit more. But what we do as coaches instead is we go, this is my blocking drill. Your job is to do better and better and better in the drill as we go. And that's a version of, of improvement. Uh, I think we need to be way more malleable with our activities, our drills that we're designing, so that the challenge, so that the the level of success is what we're sensitive to, not so that it goes up so much, but so that we can find that sweet spot, whatever it is. If we're going to put, you know, uh, one of those percentages on it, and then from there, uh, we just keep making it more challenging and more challenging and more challenging. Logically, to me, and again, this is what we talked about. Logically, to me, that makes more sense for progress uh, than doing this easier activity better what if we just tried to control in whatever we can the outcome and made the the task perpetually more challenging
0: Uh,
2: that's where i think we, we there's there's uh some low hanging fruit for practice design
0: it's a very different way to think about it i think lots of times coaches want to see that progress so going into the match we know we're ready right we've seen the improvement but i think you take a very different approach to practice that just because we didn't perform well today doesn't mean we're not you know ready for the match ready ready to perform the level we want so i think that's a it's a nice framework to to be considering andy could you do a, a baseball example i don't know i'm picturing like um you know the 45 year old uh coach out there throwing bp uh the same speed over and over i don't know would that be be example of like uh, a common drill and then how do you get the hitter in the right challenge point or if you have a better example No,
1: the 40, 40, 40 batting practice, 40 year old man from 40 feet away, throwing 40 miles an hour. And baseball is very bad about falling back on the tradition and the paradigm that you mentioned about we're looking good in progress. We're looking good in practice means we're making progress. We're not view, we're viewing things differently. We're um, in that paradigm. We're flip-flopping, learning and performance. Practice is performance. The game is learning. Like you don't see learning happen in the moment. Uh, learning takes time. And so I think we need to flip how we think about practice in the game. The practice is the performance. And the game is where learning is shown. You're not going to see that in the moment. Uh, re- in regard to your question, though, John, um, some creative things that I've seen our hitting group do with the Pirates in the major leagues is instead of doing that, having it set up where the coach is 40 feet away, they will have a coach that's set up 40 feet away, but he's throwing different pitches. So we've got some younger hitting coaches that can throw fastballs, curveballs, changeups. And then behind him, there'll be a pitching machine set up and a pitching machine that can throw different pitches. So a player will see arm, arm, arm. So from the coach, from the coach, from the coach, but then he'll see a ball come out from a pitching machine, one or two of those, and then go back to the arm and then a couple from a pitching machine. So you're seeing variation, not just in the speed and location, but also in the way the ball is being delivered. Um, And it's very difficult to move from a, an, an arm seeing that a couple times and seeing a machine a couple times and back to the arm uh, so that'd be a great way to change up that very traditional batting practice to
0: something that's more in line
1: with the challenge point
0: framework cool good examples yeah I mean it, it's with all these most important to understand the principle behind it and then people can figure out how to implement it but it is nice to hear these different ways that you guys are using it and maybe that sparks an idea for someone of you know to create their own idea do we miss anything anything to summarize challenge point for either of you
2: John, how do you use it? That's what we always miss. You never tell us what you're thinking. No, I don't know. I don't know, anything, Casey. I don't know.
0: <laughs> and I just take all the ideas you guys tell me and, and try to use them. <laughs> no, I, I think I, um, I think I'm always thinking about this and always trying to observe. I think both the physiological and psychological state of the player. Like, are they challenged? And I think for a long time I was thinking about the frustration thing. Like. I like my players are frustrated a lot. I don't know, is, is that good? Now, now I've just flipped my view of frustration. It's Like, probably means we're on the right thing. Like, we're doing the right stuff when they are frustrated. And it's more, I think what Andy was talking about at the beginning, like validating it and having them understand that that this is, you know, this means you're probably focused on the, something that's going to help, help you and um, learning how to still stay focused through frustration and, and stay, you know, all those things. So I think it's more just learning how to interact with this challenge point zone versus um you know i think questioning is it is it the right approach i think it is the right approach if you're really looking for learning this is good thanks guys i know you guys are both super busy i really appreciate you spending the time and fired up to watch the end of your season andy it's funny to say the end of your season because like two months left but when baseball that, that's like that's like the last week and then uh casey fired up to follow along the the beginning of uh, your season it's gonna be fun
2: well hey we'll be out your way weekend one so you better be there
0: oh i'm there yeah, right. yeah we'll be we'll be, we'll be
2: uh, at usc playing maybe villanova usc and colgate uh that's in, last weekend in august so i'll cool. say for you
0: do i get what's do i get like a retriever head like what's the what do i do to I, yeah one of those big paws with the thumbs up a paw, all right cool i'll be there <laughs> cool all right thanks guys